This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Mets fans, welcome to episode 243 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. Now, I know things have been a little bit rough around the Mets lately. Well, not a little bit rough. They've been pretty disastrous. So this week, we're going to take a nice trip back. We're going to take a trip back to a happier time when the Mets were not the dumpster fire that they appear to be right now. That will begin with my chat with Bobby Valentine. I got to talk to my favorite Mets manager of all time this week for just about 10 minutes about a couple different aspects of the game. And so let's get right to that. So I want to start off today talking about WinView. This is why we're chatting today. You are uh, representative of WinView today. So this is a, an app for your phone where you basically play along with the live telecast. And I did it last night during the game, and I had a great time doing it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what WinView is? I did it last night, too, and I had a great time doing it. Um, yeah, and WinView is a uh, free app. Um, you could download it onto your phone. When you do it, um, there are selected games that in real time uh, you are predicting what you think is going to happen and you match it against those that are playing against you and what actually happens in the game. So if you think a pitcher is going to come in and throw a strike or walk the first hitter or a guy's going to hit a home run or ground out to second, um, you could, you could make that prediction and uh, you're scored and um, it, it, it keeps your interest and keeps you so um, connected to the game that um, when it's all over, you, you you feel like you actually did something rather than just watch the game. Well, for uh, for a lot of our fans, they grew up watching you manage games. You know, for a lot of people listening to our podcast, we're Mets fans, you know, our whole lives. And I'm 35 years old. The first Mets championship team I remember was the team that you managed. So looking back on your Mets managerial career, What's uh, what's one managerial decision you wish you could have back? What's something you wish you could do over? Wow. Uh, 
the one thing to do over, I think I, I would have um, uh, put the squeeze on with Timo in the World Series against Mariano. Um, I think I would have um, not brought in Mel Rojas, even though I knew he was better against left-handers than right-handers to Paul O'Neill. I think I would have, um, hmm, let's see. I think I would have, who knows? done everything different in every loss that we ever had. <laughs> you know, my you know, my mom used to say, uh, Bobby, don't you understand that when you lose the game, you either take the pitcher out too soon or you leave him in too long. And I said, yes, mom, I understand that. <laughs> now you have a reputation as one of the great in-game strategists of baseball. And I used to love watching you manage because I would, I would try and play along with you almost like playing Winview. I would, I would try and figure out what's Bobby going to do here. But I think for a lot of our fans, we don't know what goes into a daily prep for a manager, especially a manager who is going to be active during the game. So what would your day look like? You show up at the ballpark, you're playing the Dodgers. What what do you do to get ready for the game? Wow. Um, you know, I would always try to do something um, prior to coming to the ballpark or right when I got to the ballpark to uh, clear my head. I'd always like to sweat. I'd like, you know, I'm notorious for riding a bike, whether it's a stationary or outdoor bike. I, I don't do that because I like to see the scenery. I do that because I think a clear head is a good head. And uh, when I sweat, I, I am refreshed. And once I'm refreshed, I try to uh, take a fresh look at that day's game. So um, to do that, you know, you get you, you get the intel, uh, you get the trainer's report, you get the stats of what uh, is happening with your players and uh, their players. You get um, the the feed from your coaches on what they might have heard. Uh, about the status of a, a certain player, and um, you, you put it all together, and then you try to get the matchup. And when you get the matchup, you do that with a lineup, and then with the lineup, you try to put people who can work together in that lineup so that um, if a guy might be um, slumping a little, you might want to get somebody in front of him that you could put in motion so that uh, you put a hit and run on so that guy might have a an opening that creates a hit that normally wouldn't be a hit or uh you you know you know who you're going to um do things on the bases with or at the plate with and then of course you set up the bullpen for that day and you try to predict situations in your mind that will occur so that you can, in fact, um, implement what you think uh, is the best the best possible situation. And, you know, as you hear every manager say when he's dealing with the bullpen, that if I could use my players like I like to use them rather than how I have to use them, uh, they're usually happier. And, and when my when I was able to plan my work and work my plan, I was always a happy camper, win or lose. When you're watching baseball today, and I'm sure you're watching a lot of baseball still today, what's one thing that managers do that just drives you nuts, that you just think, oh, come on, guys, what are you doing? Wow. Um, when when they um, allow 
things to continue that seem to be rolling down the hill, you know, that um, they, they, they don't do have a break in the action uh, to try to change the, the ebb and flow when the ebb and flow is not going in the direction. You know, they, they get kind of, um, let me not do something rather than let me do something. And, um, you know, my regrets are always the regrets of the things that I didn't do, not the things that I did do. So, um, I, you know, that frustrates me when, when guys don't do what I think they can do. Now, your Mets career started off very interestingly. You know, you were part of the infamous Midnight Massacre coming over to New York. How did that impact your relationship with the new team and the fan base, knowing that you were part of this big night that really undid a lot of years of of what fans came to think of as their Mets, you know, with, with both Kingman and Seaver being traded? So how did you... How did you recover from that and become comfortable playing in New York? Wow. Um, I don't know if um, there was a recovery as a player because I wasn't a very good player. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there was all this expectation of, you know, the guys coming from Cincinnati to fill the void of Seaver. And luckily there wasn't that much expectation um, about those two coming from San Diego to fill the void of Kingman because uh, Seaver's void was so big that that's what uh, everyone concentrated on. Um, so, uh, you know, it was ugly. I mean, there weren't any, there weren't, weren't many fans then, and the fans that were there were were extremely angry. Um, so, you know, that that wasn't a fun situation. And then. When I became a third base coach a few years later, I was 31 years old. Um, the fans still weren't very, uh, you know, happy with the situation because we still weren't very good. Now, you're the perfect person to ask this next question because City Field is going to be extending the protective netting down further than it is right now later this season. And a lot of fans are worrying about how this is going to impact the in game, the at the game viewing of what's happening on the field. Now in Japan, the netting extends much further already. So as somebody who's managed in Japan, what can you tell fans about the the new netting? Is that something that's going to greatly affect the way they watch a game, or will they not even realize it a few innings in? Well, that's interesting because um, when I got to Japan, um, the it wasn't. Netting, it was actually fencing that uh, went all around our field. And um, after a long uh, debate and uh, argument for months, uh, I had the fence taken down from uh, the first base, right about behind first base down the right field line a little. I did it so that there could be some interaction between the fans and the players, which there was none of in Japan uh, prior to that. So we started signing autographs, which was unheard of. And uh, we started shaking hands and doing things like that. Interestingly enough, I went back um, about a month ago to the uh, stadium that I managed in for the first time since I left. And uh, the fence was put back up. And um, it, it actually was more of a netting than it was fencing. So uh, it wasn't as obtrusive as um, the fencing was when I first got there. And 
As far as um, what it's going to be like in the States, I, I think, um, you know, we have better technology. The the netting should be very clear. It should be almost um, invisible to the eye. Uh, yet the interaction of fan and player is, is going to be uh, desired and sought after. And I think that um, creates situations that allow the fans to interact um, physically as well as uh, visually with the players. And the uh, last question, I just have another minute or so with you here. You, know, you managed in Japan. You had a great time managing there, it seemed like. Uh, what was your favorite part of living in Japan, though? Not managing, but what when you weren't at the ballpark, what was the best part of living in Japan? Oh, eating. Uh, it's, a, it's a food society, you know, and uh, they take uh, a lot of pride in what they do when they serve food. They take a lot of enjoyment out of what they do when they uh, consume food. And uh, when they're not... Um, making it or eating it, they're talking about it. So uh, I, I really like the, the food aspect of Japan. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. And who knows, maybe if we're playing Windview tonight, we'll wind up playing against Bobby Valentine. So have a great day. Love your style. Yeah, it's Mets Dodgers. I'm Windview. Let's make it happen. Continuing our feel-good trip to the late 90s, early 2000s, we are going to shift the conversation to another interview, one that Chris McShane did with Greg Prince. Many of you know Greg as one of the co-founders of Faith and Fear and Flushing. You also might know him from his new book, Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, which is the reason that he is here today. He's going to talk to us about the greatest position player in Mets history, one of two men to go into the Hall of Fame as a Met, and more. Chris wanted me to say he apologized for the quality of his uh, voice on this call, that his microphone was messing up, but I think he sounds fine. You be the judge of that. Here is Greg Prince speaking with Chris McShane. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio, uh, he's been on the podcast a couple times before, but you know him from Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, you know him from his book about the 2015 season with the Mets, and very recently, uh, now he is the author of Piazza, the the book on Mike Piazza and uh, and his you know journey with the Mets. So Greg, good to have you on. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Um, so I guess it, it it seems kind of obvious with him having gone into the Hall of Fame and had his number retired. But how did this book come about? Uh, was it you know something you had in the works for a while and then you you, you know were able to finish it off once he finally got into the hall or uh did you put it together you know kind of on the spot in uh in a, an impressively short amount of time <laughs> well i don't know about the impressive part but uh cl closer to the latter i guess i wasn't really thinking of a piazza book what whatsoever until he was elected to the hall of fame and and that by itself wasn't necessarily a trigger uh, it got me thinking about the reaction, not just the joy among Mets fans that he got in, but the previous Januaries when people were irritated, to put it mildly, that he didn't get in. And it, it just got me to thinking about 
the relationship among Piazza, the Mets, and the Mets fans, and when you really stepped back from it, how unlikely it was when Piazza was coming up with uh, another team uh, that that was not uh, on the Mets' radar, and at a time when the Mets were sort of the polar opposite of Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza was the celebrated superstar for whom the 1990s opened up before him as this great highway of possibilities. And at the same time, circa 1993, the Mets were bad and getting worse. So all of that kind of came together in my mind, kind of wanting to trace those steps, uh, how, how the journey came to be, how the two paths converged. And even after you know all the home runs and all the great memories, you know wh- why it lasted for us and why it was so important that, a, he got elected to the Hall of Fame. B, he went into the Hall of Fame, to use the phrase that is popular, as a Met. And C, and I, I think it's a uh, more than just a uh, an ancillary detail, given what we know about how the Mets honored their history, that his number was retired. And uh, the fact that all of that was going to be culminating in July of last year with his induction and the number retirement it, it struck me as a good time to, to tell the story. So that essentially is how the book came together, and I basically spent uh, 2016 uh, re- reliving Mike Piazza's career. So uh, <laughs> if, you ever, if you ever wanted to re-enter the 90s, this is a, a good way to do it by reading this book. Yeah, yeah. That, that, so I think, uh, you know, without giving too much away, the, you know, the overall structure of it, going back you know, getting back to Tom Seaver and then, in, you know, at greater length, the, the the team that came out of the 80s that was, you know, obviously the championship team in 86 and then the team that remained really good for the, at least a short period of time and then came out of that and just had a miserable run. Um, I think sort of the, you know, reaching back to that point, might serve as a nice reminder, um, you know, even if this season that we're currently in doesn't go the way that we had all hoped, uh, it, we, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, what some of those early 90s teams felt like. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I don't remember them maybe quite as well as, as some other fans do, but, uh, you know, there were some depths there that the Mets were in uh, that it, it might have felt like they would have never come out of. Um, so I think going back and, and sort of getting that, you know, if, if you, like me, might not have been old enough to really remember specifics and, and all that, you, you know, you remember what Vince Coleman did, you remember how Bobby Bonilla's first go-around went, but uh, I don't know, for me that that's kind of fun to get to, in, fun in a, I don't know, masochistic kind of way that... <laughs> I, I think it's fun because we know that it ended, and we, right. uh, we and the Mets did climb out of it. Uh, yeah, I started the book uh, on a specific date, uh, the text of the book, that is, uh, August 2nd, 1992, the day Tom Seaver is inducted in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I chose that as a starting point for a couple of reasons. Uh, Tom Seaver was the precedent for Mike Piazza in terms of going into the hall as a Met and having his number retired for what he did as a player for the Mets. And you cannot escape Seaver's name anytime the subject came up. 
like Piazza, if elected, would be the first met since um, Seaver, that sort of thing. And the, the fact that Seaver's induction coincided with the Mets plummeting to these depths in 1992 and prefaced Mike Piazza's debut in the major leagues by a mere 30 days. Uh, it, it would be poetic if it was 31 or 41, I suppose. But uh, it was all kind of in that that time period. It was kind of the big bang for uh, the Piazza-Mets relationship the, the, the particles at least to kind of be released into the universe, even though they wouldn't come together for another five and a half years. Uh, I did want to tell the story of the 93 Mets and the years that followed what, what I called the big dig, uh, just to kind of show how much, how far the Mets had to go to get to a point where, Obtaining a Mike Piazza would make all the difference in the world. I think if you dropped a superstar catcher into the midst of uh, the 93 or 94 Mets, for that matter, I don't know that, that it would have helped them all that much, as, as great a player as Piazza was. And I think it also shows well, when, when you watch the Mets coming out of 93 and making you know one step here, one step back, uh, just how, how there is no roadmap sometimes. You know, if, if you go back and, and look at how the 69 Mets and the 86 Mets came together, even though the 69 Mets were an incredible surprise while it was going on, they don't call them the Miracle Mets for nothing, you can kind of, in hindsight, see how that team came together and why they might have had a great year. And you certainly can see it with the 86 Mets and the way the organization put that together. There really isn't that for what became the Bobby Valentine Mets who we remember. Uh, there were a lot of ideas that were kind of thrown at the wall and steps that were taken that misfired and backfired. And tell me if this sounds familiar, injuries happened <laughs> to the Mets and uh, all, all the things that they thought were going to work out didn't. But somehow, whether through chance, luck, some some good planning, they were in a position by 1998 to say, you know what, we we could use this Mike Piazza guy if only he was available. And lo and behold, the, and the book tries to, to follow uh, the doings on the West Coast as well, he was available. And, uh, you know, what, what was set in motion in my mind, you know, circa August 1992 and 1993, uh, you know, pays off uh, by May of 1998 when Piazza becomes a Met. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's always fun in baseball to – you know, make those connections, <clears throat> sort of the, you know, uh, the origin of a player and how he came to be whatever team it is that he's on, uh, you know. So what, David Wright's another one that comes to mind just because, you know, we, he gets picked with the uh, the comp pick when Mike Hampton leaves. So there's, you know, right. it, it, that sort of exercise is always fun. Uh, and I guess you could do it in any sport, but to me it feels very... Uh, very much like a baseball thing. Yeah, and you never you never know where an era starts, and you're never really certain where it ends. So it's kind of fun to watch them overlap. Uh, you know, you, you think about the '86 Mets and that era, and then at the point where Piazza is entering our consciousness as a Dodger superstar, you've got three 1986 Mets left on the '93 team, and within a year, you've got one. 86 met Dwight Gooden 
And unfortunately, his Met career ends the way it was interrupted in 1987 with a drug test that went awry. Um, one of the, the, the flashpoints in my mind for pursuing this book was, was what I remembered about the last day of the 93 season. And you talk about kind of the, the comings and goings. Uh, on the West Coast, there's Piazza at Dodger Stadium hitting two home runs to help eliminate their arch rivals, the Giants, from this you know, epic pennant race against the Braves the last year of two-division play in each league. And on the East Coast, in Miami, it's raining, and the Mets have 103 losses, and the Marlins at that point have 97 going on 98 losses. And Dwight Gooden has been out of action for a month, and he's no longer the guy whose you know, likeness is on this this. Build the side of this building uh, in, in Midtown, and and all the you know attention that was paid to him in the 80s, and Dallas Green, who was hired after Jeff Torborg was fired to kind of clean up this mess, uh, sends Doc Gooden into pinch hit in the in the epitome of what is a meaningless game, and he ends up tripling, and then they end up sitting in a rain delay in the ninth inning, and it's just kind of a weird. Coda almost to uh, to Dwight Gooden's time in New York, where you know, at this point, the 162nd game of the year, I don't think anybody was really paying attention. And here's Piazza kind of building his legend. I was fortunate enough to be to be out west uh, that day, and I was listening to the game on the radio, and Vin Scully was just singing the praises of young Mike Piazza as, as if this was in, in a very glorious franchise, the most glorious thing that ever happened. And I thought, like, wow, Vin Scully is just impressed. Mike Piazza must be amazing. And, uh, again, that that coming and going, because you don't really think of players from, and it was only a seven-year difference, you know, but that 1986 baseball universe, the 1993 baseball universe kind of colliding even. And, you know, you just to fast forward, um, 1999, uh, when the Mets are on the verge of finally making the playoffs, which was the whole idea. I think it's the whole idea as a fan you want to see your team in postseason. Uh, another 162nd game, as it happens on the same date, October 3rd, the one where what turns out Melvin Mora scores on a wild pitch while Mike Piazza stands dumbfounded at home plate, and the Mets are going to at least a wild card play-in game. That inning began with Bobby Bonilla pinch hitting for the Mets, and you don't necessarily associate Bobby Bonilla with that period, although you know now we associate him with, with being paid off into perpetuity to to go away from that period. But, uh, you know, Bobby Benilla came back that year, kind of the, kind of the ghost of 1992-93, and he, he shows up and pinch hits, and, uh, you know, it doesn't quite work out, and uh, it's left to Melvin Moore to, to, to get that, uh, that, that portion of uh, that team's miracle started. So uh, that's just one, one of the things I really wanted to kind of put across in the book, that, uh, you know, you, you kind of remember a – a certain place in time for a particular player, a particular edition of a team. But, you know, there, there's guys coming and going all the time. And, and just to uh, kind of put a bow on that thought, you get to Piazza's last year as a Mets player when they send him off. And I mean, everybody you kind of associate with the Piazza Mets, whether it's Alfonso, Ventura, Leiter, Reed, Todd Zeal, guys like that, they're all gone. And the only, uh, really, it's no, no, Piazza's the only one left. And he's playing alongside, you know, Carlos Beltran and David Wright and Jose Reyes, who are all still with us today, uh, or, you know, certainly in baseball, uh, theoretically active in Wright's case. And, you know, a, a new era has begun 
and yet Piazza is still there. So it's just you know, one of those things you, you step back, you know, not, not, not just kind of those transaction trees that you alluded to before, um, but just, you know, the, the baseball does not have those, except that we begin a new season every year and end it at the end of that year. You know, it, it doesn't really have those, those neat parameters. So I, I, I enjoyed kind of diving into that. Yeah, and it's it's an, certainly enjoyable to read as always. And uh, I guess one of the things I was curious to hear was just in the process of diving into it. Uh, obviously, you have a comprehensive knowledge of this organization uh, and everything, and Piazza himself. But was there something that you learned about him in the process of this that you you know when you're digging through things that you said, "Oh wow, I didn't I didn't realize that about Mike Piazza," or you know, that that's just, you know, that's a new thing. Um, I think I, you know, c- kind of came across things that were, were sort of buried in my subconscious. Uh, right around this time in 2000, he began driving in runs literally every night. And <laughs> by the time it was done, he had done it in 15 games in a row. And it's one of those things that nationally record is 16, so I think he fell just shy. It's certainly a Mets record. And I remember when it was going on, they talked about it. And I was thinking, like, I didn't even know this was a, you know, a streak. I didn't even know you could drive in a run every game for 15 in a row. Because, you know, you hear about Joe DiMaggio and hitting streaks. You don't hear about that sort of thing. And I, I suppose, you know, you could ascribe some of it to luck. But when it's Mike Piazza, a guy who is the kind of hitter he was, at, uh, still in the prime of his career by then, it, it just becomes that much more impressive. And... You know, within that, and I certainly this wasn't really a rediscovery, except it was one of the, the hallmarks of his Met career. Uh, you know, the, the the ten run inning against the Braves at the end of June of 2000, the one that was capped by Piazza hitting the three run homer that brought the Mets all the way back from down eight one to up eleven eight against their arch rivals. So you know, I was constantly reminded just how to, to use the word I suppose is kind of out of favor. If, if you don't believe in it, but just how clutch he was and how you know, just that that sense of the moment and whether that can be quantified or it's just anecdotal. And, I, you know, there were times that he, you know, he grounded out or, you know, he he, he flied out with the, for the last out of the 2000 World Series, unfortunately, although while the ball was in the air, I think you had the impression that it, it might keep going and might keep the World Series going. So, you know, that, that, that I think was the... Uh, the if, if not the great discovery in uh, in writing this book, uh, it was the great reminder of players like this don't come around very often. And sometimes I just want to step back and say, well, we, we got to watch Mike Piazza be Mike Piazza all those years. Uh, as a fan, uh, what, what a treat that was. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the last thing that I had in mind, obviously he was a, a great player in his own right, and he spent – a very significant piece of his career with the Mets, significant enough that he goes into the hall with the Mets logo on his hat. Um, you know, what, I, is there anything, because it, it always seemed like when he was playing, he might have been a little guarded publicly, and, you know, I, that's not a, a bad thing by any means, uh, but he wasn't necessarily the most, you know, uh, I don't know, for, forthcoming or just whatever. He was just kind of going about his business and all that. Do you think it was that, or, or was there something else that made Mets fans really fall in love with this guy? Because that doesn't always happen with the best players on the team. Um, you know, Piazza might 
stand above all of them uh, in, in a certain way. But, you know, aside from, I think, some struggles maybe very, very early on after they acquired him, uh, this is a guy who I can't recall really getting booed once he became a long-time Met, and I think that's pretty rare. So was there anything about him that you think made that happen? I think in the wake of the early 90s, when the Mets were bringing in very established players with superstar credentials who disappointed and let down Mets fans as a rule, uh, even though some of them you know, had nice seasons, you know, the, the, the sense of all those guys, Coleman, Maurice, Aberhagen, Benia, I God, we, we get these guys and they come here and they fall apart. Piazza came here with this incredible reputation. The man hit 362 as a catcher the year before. And, you know, silver sluggers every year, all-star starting catcher every year. He comes here and he is that. Maybe the numbers weren't quite on the level that they had been because he wasn't playing as many games a year in Coors Field, maybe, or something like that. But um, you know, he didn't let us down, uh, which, which I think is you know, no, no small task to, to come with a reputation and to live up to it. Uh, he didn't do anything to make anybody ashamed of him. Uh, yeah, he didn't. He didn't talk a lot. I think that was kind of to his benefit. There were other players, especially in the, the heart of his Met career, who may not have been holler guys, but you know were happy enough to, to stand and answer the questions. And, you know, Piazza. You know, he wasn't Steve Carlton, let's say, who never talked to the press when he was having a Hall of Fame career. You know, Piazza could, would give thoughtful answers when he was in the mood, but. You know, it just wasn't his thing. He kind of wanted to take it in and, you know, do his thing. It worked for him. And he was in the middle of good lineups that he made better. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was kind of expand a little bit on the supporting casts around him, particularly those those 99 and 2000 years, because I had – I think that's why we, we remember it so fondly. It was a, such a great cast of characters. It was a productive cast of characters, and the whole thing clicked for a couple of years. So, and but but there was never any question who the leading man was, and it wasn't a situation where I don't think anybody questioned it on the Mets. I don't think he. I don't, I don't remember any types of whispers or articles or anything that said like uh, you know. Piazza, to, to paraphrase uh, Reggie Jackson, uh, Piazza thinks he's the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, he can only stir it bad. There, there was no, there was no internal warfare, shall we say, on on those nets. Uh, everybody was very happy to be a teammate of Mike Piazza, from from what I could tell. And I think that you know that that sense pervaded the fans. And I, I still think one of the the great moments, uh, for, just from a emotional standpoint in Mets history was his last game as a Met where, you know, the seventh inning stretch comes along, they, they play a tribute video and there's an ovation that goes on that stretches the seventh inning stretch to about seven minutes. And you think about how long a seventh inning stretch usually is, even if you throw in God bless America, it's not seven minutes long and comes out of the dugout and he kind of nods and waves and like, thank you very much. Like, you know, let's, just go back to the game. And, he, and nobody's having it because they just keep applauding. 
and you just wanted to keep doing that. You didn't want to let him go, and you wanted to thank him for, for making those those eighth innings and ninth innings so exciting and making those years so exciting. So um, uh, there was nothing he did wrong as a Met. And, yeah, you know, he kind of fell off in his performance, got old. You know, they sent him to play first base, stuff like that. didn't really work out. But uh, for the most part, uh, you know, like 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 Dwight Gooden, honestly, you know, when I mentioned you know the early '90s, you don't really remember that. You remember, you know, if you were around then, '84, '85, '86, and uh, that that that's how we we fix our memories of the players who uh, impress us and we we come to adore. So uh, I think you're right. I don't remember Mike Piazza being booed at Jay Stadium, but I, I, other than you know a few double plays his first year because people are impatient. But I will tell you, you mentioned uh, that I learned anything. I, I did discover something. I actually ended up cutting it for space at a Rangers game in the fall of 2003. He's in the stands and I introduced him as a celebrity. He was booted in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and uh, and, and, and uh, greeted with, with chants of Roger Clemens. And I can only assume that the the Venn diagram on that night uh, between Ranger fans and Yankee fans must have been overwhelming. But yeah. uh, certainly his name in his native habitat, uh, I think he was uh, he was golden and he still is. Yeah, yeah. As a Mets Rangers fan, I've <clears throat> I've been in the Garden uh, for much warmer receptions for Mets in recent years. So I'm I'm glad that that was the case on those nights, and I'm glad you know maybe. They just had to do with the Yankees were uh, not quite as good as the Mets over the last couple of seasons. So there you go. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, the, the, at the risk of uh, talking about Piazza all night, I guess I'll I'll, I'll wrap up and uh, just again, everyone, it's Greg Prince, the book, the full title, which I failed to say at the beginning, but Piazza, catcher, slugger, icon, star. Uh, you can find it anywhere books are available. Uh, Amazon has it, uh, you know. The Kindle, um, any particular outlet that I'm uh, forgetting that we should shout out here? Uh, you know, all, all of your uh, regular retailers of books, certainly in the New York area, your online retailers. I'll, I'll throw in a plug for a place I was just at, the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse. I had done a little Q&A. The, the owner there, Jay Goldberg, very welcoming of authors and brings people in uh, to, to these sorts of conversations. And uh, he has some books uh, that I signed on hand on uh, 67 East 11th Street. Uh, I'll also mention Turn of the Corkscrew in Rockville Center on Long Island, where I'll be doing a reading uh, in late July, July 28th. So, um, you know, it's always nice to, uh, to patronize your uh, local independent bookseller. And, but anywhere you want to get the book uh, is fine with me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're listening and you enjoyed you know, these uh, 20-ish minutes talking about Piazza, I assure you there's plenty more uh, to, to relive. And maybe, you know, for us, some things that you might not have known about Piazza before his time with the Mets uh, and, and just, you know, what that looks like. Because I think now we're at a point that, you know, people have MLB TV and we could watch Dodgers games if we so choose. Um, you know, ironically, <laughs> we're better off not living in Los Angeles to be able to do that today than... Uh, <laughs> than at the time that Piazza was on the team. But, yeah, it's uh, I, I recommend it, as I always do. And, uh, Greg, thanks again for coming on. Many thanks, Chris.
Hey everyone, this is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go for our minor league players of the week for week 11. So before we get to that, let's just look and see how the affiliates did. And the Las Vegas 51s went 2-4 and four for the week, putting them at 27-42 for the year, which is still 10 games behind the Salt Lake Bees for first place. Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 2-4 and four with a rain postponement, which gives them a 35-27 and 27 record, which puts them 6.5 games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place. St. Lucie Mets went 0-4 with a canceled game and ended this, the first half with a 30-34 and 34 record. They were eliminated from contention from a playoff berth for the first half, which went to the Palm Beach Cardinals. And finally, the Columbia Fireflies. They went 5-2, and two, which gave them a 40-27 and 27 record. The Greenville Drive came into Sunday with a 40-28 and 28 record, which put them a half game behind. So, coming into Sunday... One of those teams are going to win. If Columbia won, then they were going to get the playoff berth. If Columbia lost, but Greenville also lost, Columbia was going to get that playoff berth. If Columbia lost and Greenville won, then Greenville would get that playoff berth. Spoiler alert, Columbia lost and Greenville won, so the playoff berth went to the Greenville drive. So... Uh, our pitcher of the week now for week 11 is St. Lucie Mets right-hander Nabil Krismat. Krismat pitched one game this week, and he took the loss in a 9-inning complete game, allowing 9 hits and 2 earned runs. He walked nobody, and he struck out 13. A uh, really impressive stat, he threw 80 of his 100 pitches for strikes, and of those 80 strikes, 23 of them were swinging, which is a pretty high percentage. So a little background on Chris Matt, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with him. Uh, he was born in Barranquilla, Colombia on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1994, and he was signed as an IFA on August 3rd, 2011. And he's part of the same IFA class that Marcos Molina was in, um, John Mora was in, and Johan Arena, among others. He pitched for the DSL teams for a couple of years. Um, and then in 2014, he came stateside, and he played for the GCL Mets. He was solid with them as a reliever, and in 2015, uh, he was solid with Kingsport as a swingman. And a little point of trivia, uh, if anybody remembers in 2015, there was a game where uh, Luis Rivera, their rookie manager at the time, he forgot to fill in the bullpen in the lineup card, and so basically anybody who was not listed on the lineup card, was not able to play in that game. So when he sent a reliever uh, to, to pitch, Seth Davis, the home plate umpire called him out for it, and he didn't let anyone that wasn't on the lineup card on the field. So Chris Matt was the only uh, pitcher that he had available outside the star from that day. So after throwing a bunch of position players um, out on the mound in what turned out to be a blowout for obvious reasons, uh, Chris Matt got some mop-up duty in that game. So, fast forward now. 2016, last season, uh, he was a member of the Cyclones. He started off the season in Brooklyn. Then he got promoted to Columbia uh, about August. And then he had, I guess you could call it a cup of coffee uh, with Bing with the Binghamton Mets. Uh, he pitched in one of the last games of the season. This year, he's um, started with St. Lucie. And like every other stop that he's had in the minor league ladder so far, he's putting up solid numbers. In 12 starts now, he's thrown 73.2 innings, posting a 2.81 ERA with 18 walks and 77 strikeouts. 
So Chris Matt is a guy that doesn't have overpowering stuff, but he's been effective against lower minor league competition. And as he develops more, he could be effective against upper minor league competition and maybe even major league competition one day. The biggest thing in his way, though, right now is his fastball. Uh, it's a fringe average pitch. It is basically 87 to 90 miles per hour, which for a right-hander isn't that great in baseball today. He can get it as high as 91, 92, but that's where he's topping out at. And nowadays, that's kind of where the average right-hander sits. Um, he's 6'1", 200 pounds, so he's pretty solidly built. So he's probably not going to be adding more muscle and velocity through that. And his pitching mechanics are pretty clean. And, you know, he uses his body effectively and everything. So there aren't going to be any velocity gains from tweaking anything there either. Um, so his um, fastball, it gets some natural sync to it. And he gets above average ground ball rates. And he's been able to limit home runs. And has a little arm side run as well. So even though it doesn't have, you know, the miles per hour velocity, it does have some movement, and he gets some decent ground ball rates, so he's able to survive because of that. His best secondary pitch is his changeup. Um, it dives down about 79 to 81 miles per hour with a little bit of arm side fade. And generally it's gotten good reviews, and it's considered about you know, above average pitch. His curveball, it's a big loopy... 12-6 curveball. It's his worst secondary pitch, but it's definitely the most visually impressive. Uh, I know I've mentioned in the past that I'm a big fan of 12-6 curveballs, and Chrisman has a pretty good one, at least visually, anyway. Um, he's mentioned in the past, off, off, over the offseason, that he wanted to incorporate a slider into his repertoire. So, you know, we'll see if he does, and if he does, we'll see how effective um, it is. So basically, right now, he's just a fastball changeup pitcher mixing his curveball just to kind of change the timing of hitters. Uh, Chris Matt's another guy in the system that kind of outperforms his profile and he's greater than the sum of his individual parts. Uh, you know, the common denominator with all those guys is being able to command the pitches, having confidence in their pitches to be able to throw them in any any count, any time. And just kind of being a smart pitcher, you know, and understanding basically how to outsmart hitters and get them let them get themselves out. And another thing I've noticed as a kind of common denominator is having high knee socks. So maybe if more pitchers wore, wore high knee socks, they'd be better. It's a hypothesis, I think, that certain pitchers should test out. Uh, Chris Matt wasn't on our 2017 top 25 prospect list, but he was in the conversation for the back end. Uh, Greg listed him at 23. I had him in the 25 to 30 range, and if I remember correctly, so did Lucas. Um, but going into next year, assuming he doesn't completely tank or anything like that, I think Chris Matt will definitely be in our top 25 list for 18. I would personally guess in the 15 to 20 range, maybe 20 to 25. And now our hitter of the week is Columbia Fireflies outfielder Jay Jabs. Jebs went 12-27 and 27 with a double, a home run, two RBI, a walk, and six strikeouts. So Jebs was drafted last year uh, in the 17th round of the MLB draft, the 520th pick overall. He's from Pennsylvania, 
and he went to Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire, which is the same school that Kevin McGowan and former farmhand uh, Zach Matthew went to. He didn't have a good freshman season there, but he had a good sophomore season and a good junior season. As a sophomore, he hit three twenty eight, four fourteen, six fifty six, with 13 home runs and 23 stolen bases. And then as a junior, he hit three fifty two, four sixty six, six thirty eight, with 14 home runs and 16 stolen bases. So the book on Jabs is... He's had some success in college, but unfortunately he's probably not going to have much success in the upper levels of the minors, let alone the MLB. And, I mean, honestly, between what he did in Brooklyn last year, and it was not good, and what he's doing this year, he might not even have that much success in the lower levels of the minors. Uh, The biggest knock on him is that his swing is kind of complicated, and his upper half gets out of sync with his lower half doing the weight transfer swing and that throws off his balance and basically he loses you know whatever torque he might generate uh, if he does happen to hit the ball Um, his his best attribute is his arm Uh, it's pretty good it's strong enough to play shortstop Uh, it's strong enough to play third and it is even strong enough for right field but really, the rest of uh, his defensive game isn't really that great. But he does have an arm, so... He basically um, salvaged his first half to a degree with this recent hot streak that he was on. He raised his batting line from 191, 296, 298, to 244, 323, 361. Which still isn't great, but it's a lot better looking. Um, maybe he tinkered with his swing a little bit and figured something out. Or maybe he just kind of went on a little hot streak and it's nothing. Uh, but everything starts fresh for the second half of the Sally season, so we will see. So those are our minor league plays of the week for week 11. And I'll be back next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. Fights between teams are rare, but expected. However, when members of the same team get into it, there becomes much more intrigue. Here are the Mets' greatest in-house feuds. We start with number five, headed by a guy who initiated a lot of squabbling. Daryl Strawberry had a tumultuous eight years in New York, occasionally sparring with his own manager, Davey Johnson. Their dispute really became public knowledge at the end of the 1986 World Series. It's hard not to forget Kevin Mitchell's season-saving 10th-inning single, but it came at Darrell's expense. Strawberry was lifted in the ninth inning as part of a double switch involving Lee Mazzilli and new reliever Rick Aguilera. Completely not understanding of the strategy behind it, Strawberry was miffed and told reporters how he felt. He came back in Game 7 to hit a home run that provided some much-needed insurance to the Mets' series-clinching victory. Over their time together, Johnson became increasingly frustrated with Strawberry's tardiness to workouts and batting practice. Straw threw blame in Davies' direction for the way the disappointing 1987 season ended, feelings he made clear to Esquire magazine. On to number four, Cleon Jones, one of the greatest hitters in Mets history, versus M. Donald Grant, one of the team's most destructive personalities. Coming off a 1974 in which he played hurt, Jones underwent off-season surgery and had extended spring training the next year. In May 1975, in St. Petersburg, Florida, Jones was charged with indecent exposure, 
found in a van with a woman who was not his wife. The charges would soon be dropped, but Grant, the team's chairman of the board and full-time plantation owner, demeaned Cleon by making him publicly apologize with his wife by his side. But that wasn't the end of his shaming tactics. The decision came down that Jones should get less playing time upon his return to the team, and indignant Jones feuded with manager Yogi Berra. This turmoil was validation enough for Grant to release a player so instrumental to the team's two pennants. From a feud involving a player in the front office to a feud involving a player and other teammates, Greg Jeffries probably peaked too soon. Within a month of coming to the Bigs in 1988, he was the National League Player of the Week and a key part to the Mets' late-season push. Davey Johnson and the organization held the two-time Minor League Player of the Year in such high regard that it rubbed teammates the wrong way. The resentment deepened when Jeffrey's production dipped in 1989 and onward. He was never able to conjure up the same numbers he produced during the magical month of September 1988. As criticism increased, Jeffries, oftentimes over-emotional, penned a letter addressed to Mets fans, but was clearly an indirect shot aimed at those in the clubhouse. The letter was read on WFAN. Instead of that smoothing things over, it was seen as further proof that he couldn't handle the pressures of New York. Greg left the Mets after 1991 and made the All-Star team twice. At number two, it's the ever-entertaining Bobby Valentine and his general manager Steve Phillips. During his time as Mets GM, Phillips wasn't afraid to make some bold moves, and outspoken Bobby V wasn't afraid to say how he felt about them. Such as in April 2000, when he took a public shot at the front office and a few of the players Phillips handpicked. Their power struggle, which was red meat to the ravenous New York press, began around 1998 and continued over the next four years, which included great successes, such as the 1999 run to the NLCS and the 2000 National League pennant, along with tremendous disappointments. Their relationship with the Mets ended when Valentine was fired after 2002, but the two have apparently made up since. The feud between Bobby V and Phillips enveloped several seasons, while the number one feud is focused on a shorter period of time, but it culminated in the darkest day in Mets history. In the wake of the 1973 pennant, the Mets slowly declined. The death of original owner Joan Whitney Payson gave more authority to M. Donald Grant. Yeah, him again. His tight-fisted approach coupled with the disdain for player authority, led to the ultimate showdown. Tom Seaver, the most revered player the Mets have ever had, was becoming increasingly unhappy with the lack of personnel improvements prior to 1977. Prickly sports writer Dick Young, who sided with Grant and was equally unwilling to accept change, had a New York Daily News column mentioning how Tom's wife, Nancy, complained of her husband's contract situation with Nolan Ryan's wife, Ruth. The public invoking of his spouse infuriated Tom to the point of demanding a trade that he had previously called off. Seaver later said that column was the straw that broke the back. And thus, the midnight massacre ensued. Seaver was off to Cincinnati. The Mets were damaged for the foreseeable future, and Shea Stadium became known as Grant's Tomb. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. Hi, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and we are coming at you 
Now on a Wednesday, it is the summer solstice, and the Mets have just gotten crushed by the Dodgers late last night. Finally wrapped up, 12 to nothing final. The ball continued to soar to the park for the Dodgers. Corey Seager hit three home runs. A couple of them were hit the other way. Barely got out, but that still happened, and it was just discouraging to see the ball just fly off. Those Los Angeles bats get over the wall. Mets couldn't do much of anything. Even Jose Reyes, who hit two home runs the night before. Shockingly, I know, and if you can't tell I'm being sarcastic, it's really shocking that he didn't continue to hit. But I'm just mad that Reyes did something that'll probably keep in the lineup for another month instead of the Mets trying something else in the lineup. Meanwhile, I think the most curious thing that they've done lately is stick with this six-man rotation, even though Matt Harvey got hurt. They are still putting someone in his spot, and because Rafael Montero was needed in mop-up duty on Monday night, that means that it will be Tyler Pill getting the call to start on Wednesday, and he will have already pitched by the time you're hearing this, so I hope that went well. But even if it did, it's still weird that the Mets are still going with the six-man rotation, I know that a lot of fans and media have given up on the season and are really ramping up for trade season and to see if the Mets can restock their farm system or how well they can restock that farm system. That's actually all not terrible as it stands now. So we could be looking at a very strong Mets farm system depending on how things go over the next month and 10 days. But... But to get back on track, the Mets are still using the six-man rotation, They, even though they probably shouldn't because they shouldn't give up on the season yet. And calling up Tyler Pill to make a start when he probably doesn't need to, that sounds like it's a lot of giving up. Although the Mets will probably say it's for the long-term health of the rotation with Steven Matz and Seth Lugo coming off injury. It makes sense to give them the extra day, but I just don't know how long it's going to help. Both guys have been efficient in their first two outings, even though Matt's got rocked for the three home runs in his last start. The point point is that we don't know if they actually need this extra day of rest. How much is that going to help? Whatever the Mets are doing for player health has not been working. It hasn't helped that their guys have bulked up with super muscles like Noah Syndergaard and Ioannis Cespedes. That's landed both guys on the disabled list, although it's nice to have Cespedes back and he seems to be getting healthier it hasn't helped them being careful with their starters a lot of Harvey I should say specifically has gotten hurt although Jacob deGrom looks a lot better lately after he had two horrendous starts he bounced back with a couple really strong outings so he's looking good Zach Wheeler I don't even know what to say he just got blown up twice in a row after he was looking so consistent pitching Really nicely, it appears he's going to have trouble just breaking through from being a slightly above-average starter. Robert Gazelman has gone back and forth from the bullpen to the rotation and now has had just really discouraging stuff last night where he just couldn't... He was throwing it too much over the plate. But the Mets are going to keep going with being conservative with these injuries. Mets... And Lugo going to get an extra day, and there's not much to say. I don't 
Not a fan of the strategy. I'd rather just both guys go on four days rest, see what they can do. If it turns out that was just too much for them to handle, then were they were they really going to lift this team into a playoff race anyway? It just... Uh, from one point of view, the season is so far gone already that you might as well be careful. From another point of view, I'd rather just see if they can handle the workload because... If you're being cautious now, it's going to stop you from being cautious next year when it really might hurt the team to use a six-man rotation. Uh, I'm just at a loss for why Tyler Pill needs a start on Wednesday. But he's pitched really well in AAA. He's had some sort of magical control over home runs. Only two home runs allowed in the Pacific Coast League when he's been there almost the whole year is is really just a, a magical thing. I don't know if he can keep it up, but he was good in his last start at AAA. He was he looked decent in his major league outings. He really only had one that one bad start where he allowed five runs. I think that was against the Cubs. So maybe Pill turn out good. He might turn out be better than Harvey or Zellman or Wheeler down the stretch. You just don't know. The performance has been so variable lately that you just don't know who your best five guys are right now. Tyler Pill, it's a long shot. He might be one of those guys. So maybe it is worth testing him out, giving him a go, and seeing what he can do against the Dodgers lineup that just destroyed the Mets for two nights in a row. But we're going to have those answers, and we're going to have more answers as the Mets continue. They're playing a lot of road games. They only have one more home series left before that All-Star break in early July. I believe July 9th is the last game on the first half schedule. So we're going to see what the Mets can do. It's going to be a tough road. So if they don't play well, they're going to continue losing games. They'll be really out of it by the All-Star break. And then we can really ramp up the trade talk in July. But for now, the Mets should continue to fight. And I'm not sure Tyler Pill is the best answer for that. But not much else has worked lately. So we'll see. And uh, we'll get back to you next week. This has been Aaron York from Mason Avenue Audio. I guess ostensibly the point of this segment is to not tell you when to panic, but warn you when to start panicking about the Mets. And it is that time. It's probably past that time, but I've been in a bit of denial. The Mets are bad. The Mets... I mean, they've probably ruined the season. It's come to that, you know. I kept saying, they're going to fall in October, November, whatever the postseason is at this point. They keep pushing it later and later. I don't think that's happening anymore, folks. It's too ugly. And, yeah, the Mets are bad. I mean, Robert Gazelman is just getting lit up every time he's been on the mound lately. They've got Tyler Pill making starts because they're still insisting on a six-man rotation where they don't have six starting pitchers who should belong on a major league team. The bullpen is awful. I mean, it's just, it's all bad. This is the most depressing thing I've ever said out loud. But, you know what? It's, what is it? It's June 21st and the Mets season is over. Go outside. Go play with your kids or with your parents or your friends. Just turn the Mets off for now because... It's not getting any prettier from here.
Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We truly do appreciate it. We hope that the next time we get together, the Mets have done something better than be terrible on the West Coast. But who knows the way this season's going. So at least we have each other to help get through these uh, these tumultuous times. But anyway, to help get through these tumultuous times, please go to AmazingAvenue.com. Check out all of our Mets coverage there. I promise not all of it is depressing. We talk about the minor leagues. We talk about... Uh, we reminisce about old games and old players. There is some fun stuff, even when the team is looking as absurdly terrible as they are looking right now. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can download the show directly from blogtalkradio.com or subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. It's not iTunes, it's Apple Podcasts. I have to get used to saying that. I am a bad, bad corporate shill. Apple Podcasts. Apple podcasts you can also rate review and uh tell your friends about the show those three things would help quite a bit specifically if you're doing so on apple podcasts those ratings and reviews truly do help the show so please keep those coming we really do appreciate it and uh, last but not least you can find all the contributors to this week's show on twitter i am at brian needs a nap chris is at chris mcshane kate is at kate e feldman brian wright is at brian wright 86 steve is at steve Saipa. And Aaron is at Aaron P. York. I say this every week, but please, 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 let's all hope the Mets are better the next time we talk. It's going to be a long summer, folks. And until that time when we speak next, and hopefully when the Mets have stopped breaking our hearts, let's go Mets. <laughs>